You're listening to the Copenhagen Liberty Podcast by Cepos, an independent free market think tank based in Copenhagen. Continue listening for inspiring conversations with experts and thinkers about economics, politics and society. Your host is Cepos president Martin Overup. Thank you, Dalibor, for flying into Copenhagen. It's the 27th of April. It doesn't feel like it. It's very, very cold. Believe me, sometimes it's it's warmer. But it's great to have you here. Um, we are uh, going to be discussing some very, very important topics here today. Uh, Dalibor Rohatch has written uh, a fascinating book, which is uh, the uh, sort of direct reason why we're having this conversation about this topic. It's called Governing the EU in an Age of Division. Um, I finished reading it a few days ago. It's a, it's a great read. It's very interesting. Congratulations. So, Daribo, uh, thank you very much for, for uh, joining us here in Copenhagen. We'll be discussing, discussing the future of the European Union uh, and your vision for a decentralized uh, European Union. Um, let me first present Daribo Rohatch. Uh, he is Senior Fellow in foreign and defense policy at the American Enterprise Institute in Washington uh, in the USA. Uh, he has a PhD in political economy from King's College in London and economics degrees from St. Anthony's College, University of Oxford, George Mason University and uh, Charles University in Prague. Okay, let's uh, start a little bit on, on, I mean, Slovakia shares a border with uh, the Ukraine. Slovakia does share a border with the yeah, Ukraine yeah. and Slovakia is also headed into a parliamentary election later this year. And I think much of the current policy consensus hangs in the balance there. So Slovakia, like its neighbors, most importantly Poland, has been very uh, active in trying to help Ukraine. Most recently, Slovakia delivered its entire fleet of Soviet-made MiG-29 fighters to to, to Ukraine. Um, but that policy consensus in favor of Ukraine is very fragile given the state of public opinion in the country. And there is a not an unreasonable fear that Slovakia might follow the path of Hungary after after the election. So what's going on there? Why why is Slovakia so different from Poland? It is I mean it is a very hard thing to explain. Uh but very consistently when you look at polling in in, in, in Slovakia, Slovak population is significantly more pro-Russian than, than say, the Poles. Uh, I mean, Slovak public opinion resembles on, on these matters, perhaps public opinion in Bulgaria. Right. Um, I think it stems partly um, from a sort of latent sense of sort of anti-Americanism, which might date back to the um, US-led intervention in Kosovo, which was sort of attacked at the time by, by the political opposition uh, on sort of almost pan-Slavic grounds, sort of saying that we should not be assisting in in a sort of war waged against our Slavic brethren. And 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 you really had some very sort of irresponsible leadership from from some political quarters that I think helped sort of entrench kind of anti-American, anti-Western sentiments in a way that I think might prove quite quite damaging in, in the months to come. So that that's worrying from a sort of, of foreign and security policy perspective what about the uh, internal politics of uh, and the institutions of liberal democracy are they under threat in slovakia um i don't want to be overly alarmist i mean there are important differences between the hungarian situation and the slovak one uh, for one it is very hard to imagine a future government any future government that would not be a coalition government 
so that already poses some sort of checks and balances on the on the power of the you know executive and the ability of um, Viktor Orban like leader to okay. entrench themselves so 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 that is not a direct risk at the same time i mean the uh, slovaks went through this initial burst of reforms and 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 and, and sort of significant improvements in the business environment rule of law fighting corruption uh, around the time when we were joining the european union and since then i think a certain sort of complacency has set in uh, there has been significant brain drain i mean that you know there is a reason why i'm living in washington and not not in bratislava uh, and uh, the risk is that uh, that that sort of stasis and stagnation will, will sort of continue and, and 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 make it harder for slovaks to you know catch up with with more advanced economies uh, to to our west okay there's already a so, gap opening, pretty significant one between between uh, Slovakia and, say, the Czech Republic. I was just going to say that uh, you would expect the Czech Republic to be uh, a sort of uh, example to, to to follow. That it would be very hard to to do worse uh, than the Czechs uh, without sort of trying to think why is this going on? Why why aren't we doing as well? And how can we copy them? It's an interesting, interesting question. I mean, the fact of the matter is that you have lots of Slovaks that emigrated to the Czech Republic. De facto, I mean, there is no language barrier to speak of. <clears throat> um, that even before the EU accession, there been no sort of legal restrictions for for Slovak citizens to come and work and study, etc., in the Czech Republic. And and, and so. Uh, it boils down to the willingness of people to use voice or exit. In, in 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 sort of you know influencing matters yeah. in their own country and and paradoxically using exit does not necessarily put the pressure on on governments to do better rather they you know f- politicians face sort of smaller and and then sort of demobilized electorate as a result mm. okay. which, which seems to be so I guess that's a good segue to the the main topic of our conversation, mm-hmm. which is uh, your vision for um, revitalizing the European Union, both in a political sense, but also uh, from an uh, economic perspective. Um, so the title of your book is Governing the EU in an Age of Division. Uh, and um, the way I I read it, um, uh, you're... you're critical of the aim of and of the dogma of ever closer union uh, of the European Union and you uh, speak for a, a more decentralized approach to European integration. Could you say a little bit more about what your criticism is about, why mm-hmm. you're critical and what you aim to propose instead for the European Union? Okay, um, I think that's a sort of fair fair summary of the of the main argument. So, so what what I do at a sort of abstract conceptual level is is to show that there really are two uh, different sort of sets of lenses through which one can look at uh, the European project. One can either see the EU uh, and the integration project as an actual project aiming towards a goal trying to move Europeans to a certain destination, we have a closer union, um, or one can see the European Union as an order existing at a point in time in sort of space, both geographic space and a sort of abstract space. Uh, and uh, I think 
those two sets of lenses or these two views of 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 of, of the EU are in a tension that has no, not been always very well sort of negotiated or or addressed, and the project itself has been traditionally very heavily tilted towards the view of the EU as a project, as something in the making. I mean, you know, when you talk to people in the Brussels bubble, so-called, they would tell you that... And you've lived there for a while. Uh, I actually never lived in Brussels, I mean, I, but I was in Brussels two days ago, uh, <laughs> presenting the book. But, but you've been working for a, a Brussels-based... Uh, I have an affiliation with the Martin Center, which is the official think tank of the European People's Party. Um, ah yes, okay. In 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 Brussels, and and so they kindly invited me to to a nice panel with Klaus Welle of all people, okay. uh, the um, former chief of staff of Manfred Weber and the author of the Spitzenkandidaten system. So so next to Klaus Welle, I really looked like an arch Eurosceptic. Uh, next day in London, uh, meeting some of my Brexiter friends, I suddenly became a Eurofederalist of sorts. Really, <laughs> not 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 being particularly at ease with 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 either of those uh, two 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 groups. So um, the approach that has been taken uh, by sort of dominant political forces on the centre right and centre left uh, has been one of sort of approaching uh, the challenge of European integration as as really sort of you know building a future federal state and, and 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 you can see that in um in, in the various sort of institutional changes and policies that have been adopted over time which have rarely been justified on uh you know either procedural legitimacy grounds or output legitimacy grounds more often than not they were justified by the promise of you know the, the good things that await us at the destination right the euro was created uh at the time when all economists on the left, on the right, agreed that um, the Eurozone did not fit the definition of, of an optimum currency area, it didn't have a system of fiscal transfers, didn't have enough flexibility, didn't have enough labor mobility between its constitu constituent parts. Um, yet the Euro was sort of introduced in the hope that it would become necessary to complete the architecture of the monetary union eventually by building in a system of fiscal transfers or or having much closer integration of 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 European economies as a result. Uh, the European Parliament, when it was turned into a directly elected body in the 1970s, I don't think uh, responded necessarily to to a sort of pre-existing Europeanization of political life. And to this day, political life in Europe is ob obstinately national. Uh, I was, you know, this system was set up and, and the Spitzenkandidaten system was set up uh, with the explicit purpose of sort of moving Europeans towards a sort of more, more Europeanized, more sort of homogenized form of political life. Um, so, so create, uh, um, there was no European public, but uh, creating the parliament, which you normally say, uh, you need a European public for that to make sense, but you create the parliament in order to create the, the European. Public. I mean, that's um, that's in essence the, the 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 basic idea of the salami method, advanced by 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 Jean Monnet famously that that you start cooperating or, or with with integration in, in sort of small number of policy areas where it's feasible, in the hope that it will beget more and more cooperation over time and make it inevitable for for the European project to sort of move towards that desired destination. Uh, 
it fueled um, a culture, political culture of total optimism, as, as John Dom Domenico Magione, the great Italian political scientist, calls it. That 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 always these these sort of steps were leaps into the dark were sort of taken uh, under sort of most optimistic, sunniest assumptions about what will happen, what will happen next. And and the point I make in the book is that. Uh, you know, ra rather than sort of directly sort of criticizing this view, I mean, it's, you know, it's a perfectly reasonable view to have that, that, you know, we ought to be moving towards a European federal state. I mean, you know, I, it's not necessarily my view, but, but, but it's, you know, not, 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 not a sort of crazy ambition, uh, but, but clearly uh, that ambition runs into constraints imposed by, I mean, Europe's heterogeneous realities. I mean, Europe has always been a very unwieldy, decentralized continent. My uh, colleague at AI, uh, Jesus Fernandez Villaverde, who teaches at uh, UPenn, has a wonderful paper with his co-authors that looks at Europe's geography and, and the sort of, um, essentially, um, the, the fragmented nature of land including arable land and, and the sort of land masses that that, that, um, that that go through through the continent that make it very difficult to, to sort of descend to, to, to politically centralize centralize Europe so so it's not a coincidence to my mind that uh, in the past uh, I mean Europe has been traditionally governed through you know very complex unwieldy governance structures I mean epitomized by the likes of the Holy Roman Empire or mm -hmm. my personal favorite the Polish, Lithuanian uh, Commonwealth, uh, and may maybe moving closer to the present, uh, Europe's diversity, heterogeneity is a fact of life, that, and it has only increased with the Eastern enlargements uh, following 2004, 2007, and, and 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 the following ones. And I think you know from where I come from, I mean those enlargements have been a terrific success. I mean, you really have 100 million people in Eastern Europe living in democracy, living in a free market economy, notwithstanding you know, questions we might have about democratic backsliding in, in some countries. But I mean, it's very easy to sort of see what the counterfactuals are. In 1990, uh, Poland and Ukraine had the same real uh, per capita GDP. Uh, before the war, Poland was in 2022, 2021, Poland was uh, three times uh, as wealthy. In, in in real terms as ukraine and and, and so big part of, of of the story of polish success has been its its eu membership and 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 and, and its sort of part in the in the single market and its place uh in in in, in these international supply chains that 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 have relocated to poland uh yet there is still a gap between both the east and the west economically speaking and notwithstanding the catch-up growth, there is a massive gap between you know many old members as well. And in fact, there is very little convergence uh, among the old EU 15 uh, member states. Uh, if anything, there is in fact divergence on, on on some important economic metrics. If you look at total factor productivity, you have negative rates of growth of total factor productivity in places like Spain and Italy consistently since the 1990s. Um, whereas you know you have countries like Denmark or, or or Sweden or the Netherlands that uh, I mean continue growing and, and becoming more more productive over time. Uh, 
You have public debt uh, diverging quite a lot. You have some yeah, countries increasing that debt. You have some countries that have decreased that I debt think since the, the, the 90s. That's right. And, and, and the, that sort of diversity, heterogeneity, goes beyond just economic measures. I mean, you look at national politics, I mean, which is very different in, in each member state. Uh, since 2019, we have a country in the European Union which is ranked by Freedom House is only partly free, uh, Hungary. I mean, that, I mean that, that, that is a challenge in its own right. Uh, in my opinion, you look at um, questions of sort of social attitudes and values, which which differ very very markedly across across the EU. I mean, you know, on on the Pew poll, eighty eight percent of Swedes are okay with same sex marriage. I don't think you know it's a massively controversial issue in Denmark either. Uh, you know, in a place like Hungary or Poland, I mean, the support for something like same sex marriage uh, would be closer to thirty percent. And, and and so 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 the argument I'm making is that this underlying diversity which exists is a fact of life and it imposes a constraint on how far the integration process can go. I mean there is indeed a trade-off between uh how wide the EU is and how deep it can go. And and I think it would be foolish to deny the existence of that trade-off. There are things that EU fifteen could do that EU27 can't do, and that certainly EU, uh, once it includes Ukraine, won't be able to do. And and I think we have to start, you know, treating Europe um, as it exists, not not as a sort of malleable entity that we can sort of reshape mm. uh, to 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 uh, to fit our, our you know desires and. And, and and political ambition. So that, in a nutshell, is is the argument that I propose. So, um, in concrete terms, uh, looking at um, sort of actual um, policy areas or um, ambitions of of the Commission or or, or, or the, the the Council, mm -hmm. uh, how does this play out? How how is it becoming a a, a problem for the kind of integration? Uh, ambition uh, that we're seeing now and, and, and the approach towards it that, that we have this diversity in 27 countries I think the, the way it plays out concretely is that you have um, I mean instances of overreach and under delivery to put it simply by, 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 by the European Union uh, for example you know there were big claims made about uh the economic benefits generated to be generated by the euro and the fact that you will no longer have to face a currency exchange related risks that it would sort of facilitate trade i think the evidence is in 20 years later that the gains from the common currency were very modest mm. in terms of generating you know, new trade and new sort of economic opportunities uh, across 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 Europe, and we can sort of talk more about the other dimensions of of, of having a current currency common currency later. Uh, but 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 clearly um, that hasn't been a sort of massive success story. Neither has it led to uh, that 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 sort of salami method like sort of uh, convergence that too but also i mean it didn't you know, we didn't complement the monetary union with with these sort of other institutions that were supposed to materialize you know say through the crisis of of 2008 to 2010 uh people who sort of hoped for a true fiscal union i think were disappointed 
as a as a as a, as a, as a result, and you can sort of make similar arguments about. Uh, Would you uh, hope? Uh, did uh, did you hope for that uh, a fiscal union? I mean, I didn't necessarily hope for that. Uh, but I mean, the logic of 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 that that John Monet approach to integration was was that it will start with a single currency, and then it will become necessary to yeah. complement the common currency with transfers, maybe European taxes, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And that just didn't happen. And I think it's uh, still fa fairly unlikely to sort of materialize anytime soon. Um, you can make similar arguments about. You know, I, I'm, I'm I'm a massive fa uh, fan of, of 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 having the you know Schengen area of passportless travel, uh, but it's kind of difficult to sustain the Schengen area, particularly when faced with you know border crises uh, uh, in a in a in a setting where uh, immigration and asylum policy and border protection is left in the hands of member states, mm. right? And uh, and that's what we saw play out in 2015, 2016. Uh, with 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 the refugee crisis yet uh it is also very difficult if not impossible to come up with a european level immigration and asylum policy because there are dramatic differences between member states in in in, in what they would like that policy to 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 look like and i think this sort of concatenation of these sort of overreach instances of overreach and under delivery i mean first of all erodes trust of people in the european project and and also I mean creates conflicts. I mean I I, I don't see much uh, compelling rationale for uh, you know European institutions inserting themselves into many national level um, debates, particularly when it comes to you know various questions related to you know culture wars that are being waged uh, in you know in countries like 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 Hungary and. Poland. So, so, so I think there is a real risk um, that you know the, the more the EU tries to do of the things that it isn't well positioned to do, that uh, you know the less member states will 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 pay attention to it, and and we'll see a sort of process of gradual hollowing out of 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 European institutions. I mean, we just saw that very recently uh, in you know in Eastern Europe with unilateral import bans imposed on. On Ukrainian grain by countries like Poland, Slovakia, uh, Romania, and and Hungary. I mean, you know, totally contrary to, to 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 EU law, totally sort of outside of 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 any legal framework. We you know we saw something similar with the unilateral border closures uh, at the beginning of the pandemic, where countries just sort of took things into their hands without you know asking anybody in Brussels for permission, and and we kind of sort of pretended that it never happened as a, a, a mm. later. And and so so I don't think the real risk. I was I was here in 2016. We were debating Brexit, just a few weeks before the referendum. And I, th I think, you know, one lesson of 2016 is I is think we're we're discussing Nord Stream as well, weren't we? Might have been discussing Nord Stream yes. as well. So, <laughs> so I think you know one one one, one sort of lesson of of of, of that experience. And, that, and that, at that time, I wasn't particularly interested in that issue. I should <laughs> I should have been. Uh, the, you were right. Uh, sorry. Go on. Uh, so, so, so you know, like, no, no, I don't think the real risk facing the EU is that there will be many other countries trying to follow the British example, uh, but but rather that you en can end up in a situation in which I mean the European institutions become less and less relevant. That that and and that um, I mean that the real fundamental sort of European public goods that that the EU has provided will start fraying around the edges. And then what I have in mind in particular are the four freedoms. I mean, to me, the four freedoms are really. The living, beating heart of the European project, and if you, you know, if you have give the listeners the four freedoms. What are they? Uh, of movement, of 
goods, services, capital, and people. Um, so basically the internal market. That's right. Yeah. So that that's a public good. Um, and maybe we can get back to um, to discussing some of the stuff the EU is doing and subsidiarity. Mm-hmm. But but let's let's stick with the with the sort of main uh, discussion right now. So you're critical of the idea of having a sort of mono- monolithic organization doing a one size fits all uh, policy on 27 countries with this kind of diversity mm-hmm. on many different policy areas. But you're saying uh, there are areas where it needs to be done. Is is this a Eurosceptic position? Would you call it a Eurosceptic position? I wouldn't call it a Eurosceptic position. I, uh, I mean, in 2016 when I was here, I was I was I was here to promote my earlier book called um, "Towards an Imperfect Union: A Conservative Case for the EU." I was trying to show to my friends on the political right, especially in sort of English-speaking world, that there are many things about the European project that they should like. That you know, you, you failed in Britain. I did fail in Britain, yeah. uh, but you know, you, oh, sorry you, to point it out. You, you know, you <laughs> do not really know what the counterfactual would have been. I mean, maybe, maybe uh, <laughs> no, right. vote leave would have won by by a landslide instead of four <laughs> percent. If yeah. I hadn't written the book, uh, I, my, you know, my, my hope with the book is not. Uh, to you know, throw stones at at, at at the EU or sort of criticize it needlessly. My hope is is to, is to help make it relevant and, and 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 simply make it work better. And and I think the condition for that is is a sort of acceptance of the fact that the EU is not a superstate in the making. Uh, that it should not model uh, itself after sort of ambitious centralist forms of, of 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 federalism but rather should sort of try to just sort of embrace the the, the fact that the diversity is really a defining feature of the of the of the continent i mean okay so let's get get into that what is it uh, you're proposing instead of mm-hmm. the sort of centralized uh, european union that we we that that brussels is trying to it fails yeah, often, yeah. but that, that it's trying to do right now. So conceptually, what I propose is, is is to sort of understand that the EU is not one monolithic entity, but it is in reality a bunch of fairly sometimes different integration projects that can run in parallel, and that can also encompass slightly different coalitions of uh, of, of 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 participants. Uh, I think there has to be a common core. I mean, I'm you know certainly not advocating you know the EU as a free for all state of anarchy in which different coalitions can do you know absolutely whatever they 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 want. Uh, to me, I mean the you know the core principles are really the four freedoms and the sort of integrity of the of 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 that internal market, which needs to be deepened and strengthened in. In, 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 in some important in some important respects uh, I'm also sort of small C conservative with my proposal in the sense that I don't think it is very likely that we'll see major treaty changes or major sort of you know in, in, in new treaty being written uh, of, 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 of of the sort we saw in in, in the notice with the constitution for Europe and and the, um, and, the and, and the Lisbon treaty so so I basically accept the state of the EU as it is and I propose, that instead of op- ec- almost exclusively relying on on the community method to pursue new policies, uh, I think we should rely far more as Europeans on on sort of more flexible approaches that do not necessarily involve uh, 
each and every member state. I mean, there is in so the Lisbon Treaty, there is already a procedure under Article 20 of enhanced cooperation. And actually, many uh, of, of the sort of recent achievements in, in the European project were sort of done through through that method, whether it's, you know, European patent, whether it's European divorce law. Um, I mean, PESCO, the, the defense cooperation, I mean, it's not under Article 20, but it's a de facto intergovernmental uh, arrangement and not everybody needs to participate and not certainly not everybody participates in all the projects that, that fall under under PESCO. So there is a lot more sort of... Schengen, I guess, is also... Uh, I mean, you don't have I mean, to you have, you know, I, Ireland is not part of Schengen. Yeah. Uh, so so, so th there already is a degree of sort of picking and choosing. And and I think we just have to, you know, get get a, get accustomed to it, get comfortable with it. I mean, I still need, I, you know, we still need European institutions to particularly ensure that the basic common rules are respected. Uh, um, that's a you know a very complicated conversation we can yeah. sort of get into. But but again, like I'm not advocating a state of anarchy, but I'm advocating um, you know perhaps an EU that would put less of an emphasis on the distinction between members and non-members as well. So, you know, you could have members that just, you know, won't be in the Eurozone, won't be in, you know, some parts of the integration project. You can have non-members that will be participating in some attributes of, of the integration project. It already is happening to some extent with, you know, Norway, Iceland, etc. Switzerland being part of the single market and an and area of passportless travel. Uh, and I think with relations to uh, countries like like the UK where we have I think a very strong need to to keep the UK close particularly for security and defense purposes uh, this could sort of more flexible approach could 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 provide a useful way forward and pr probably most urgently I think we need a more creative and more flexible approach to enlargement because the idea that Ukraine uh, can simply sort of sit back and negotiate for 20 years and then, you know, have its accession ratified in, you know, 2030 uh, without, you know, the French or the Germans chickening out. Uh, I, I don't think that that, that, that that view is tenable. And I think there's a real risk. I mean, there's a real opportunity and a real risk involved in, 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 in uh, having, having, having this dialogue with, 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 with the Ukrainians. And the risk is that if the expectations that Ukrainians have are disappointed, we might see a sort of anti-European backlash that would be to the detriment of, of, of everybody uh, after the war. So what I propose is, you know, let's turn this into a much more piecemeal approach in which we, you know, can get, maybe we can get Ukrainians already tomorrow into the Erasmus scheme and have Ukrainian students come to European universities and vice versa. Mm. Maybe, um, you know, it's a much simpler process for Ukraine to join the single market uh, prior to joining the the EU. I mean, that's something that Ursula von der Leyen alluded to, by the way, in her State of the Union speech last year. So, so, so I do propose that we try to, you know, front load as much as possible of of all the goodies that come with with you know EU membership to the Ukrainians as early as possible, instead of sort of following this very sort of technocratic box ticking approach to 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 accession, which could mean that it would take decades for the Ukrainians to uh, be able to become members of the European Union. I mean, realistically, it would take a long time, of course. Yeah. And there is uh, also this sort of risk of sort of political uncertainty that is associated with that. I mean, you can see why some member states, all the member states, I mean, uh, might not want to see their sort of 
be the political power diluted by by another big country mm. joining mm. um and uh, you know if you just look at the examples of turkey and western balkans like these are not success stories yes. where, where this sort of you know it the the sort of technocratic approach it worked well in central and eastern europe but it just failed us quite catastrophically i would argue in the case of western balkans and 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 and, and turkey i mean we are now dealing with a turkey that's far more uncooperative and and a sort of problem actor problematic actor than than ever before and western balkans i think went through the sort of cycle of disappointed expectations and and cynicism and and now we have leaders like like alexander vucic in serbia that's sort of trying to play the europeans against the russians against the chinese and 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 it's just not not a sort of you know thriving part of the world as a result I guess one challenge I can see with this approach is um, uh, take y- Ukraine. As an economist, uh, I would be looking at uh, a sort of partial integration of Ukraine and go, okay, one of the things that we should not do is to inclu- include the Ukraine in the common agricultural policy and in, in a lot of the transfer uh, programs, uh, regional policy and whatever transfers uh, money a- across the borders because the Ukraine has such a high level of corruption. And you have an interesting section in your book, by the way, uh, interesting and, and somewhat depressing, uh, where you describe how uh, how many of these programs has ha- have increased corruption in, in Europe, Eastern European countries. But here's the challenge. I think the, the Ukrainians would want those programs, wouldn't they? Uh, so, so, um, so maybe it's it's hard to disentangle and unpackage the the the, the deal uh, because the Ukrainians would say, "Well, we'd like to join the internal market, but you, that will give you access to our uh, large population for your goods, and, and we need some uh, you know some help, some transfers in, in order to to counterbalance that." I mean. Uh, <laughs> Whatever happens will be a result of sort of bargains and compromises, yes. and and it is likely that, I mean, first of all, you know, the personal reconstruction of of Ukraine will involve transfers from you know the West to to Ukraine. I mean, we should be just sort of realistic about it. Like it it is going to happen, uh, and it is going is, to increase uh, corruption probably. It, um. You know, it will have all kinds of sort of second order effects. Uh, you have to hope, and and I think we have to sort of put in place policies that make it more likely for you know, reforms to take place that are necessary to strengthen the rule of law and, and, and prevent the sort of backsliding that you see in, in, in places like Hungary and Poland. Where, by the way, the problem is not simply the fact that there have been transfers that, you know, in the case of Hungary, the ruling party is sort of using to create a system of patronage and and and, 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 and basically buy political support. Uh, but but the problem really is that um, before the enlargement, um, there was a big emphasis on conditionality, on sort of meeting criteria and holding oneself to high standards. Uh, but that conditionality kind of disappeared with with the accession. I mean, it's a little bit like getting into Harvard, right? Like it's very hard to get in, but once you're in, like you're probably not going to uh, be kicked out. You're probably going to graduate. And 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 and, and I mean, we are in a and the, the sort of piecemeal approach. Same for Ooh. professors. There's a Danish professor who says it's very hard to become a professor, but it's easy to be one. I think that's <laughs> that, that 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 might very well be true. I mean, I I know many tenured professors who I think seem to be having a a, a fun time. Uh, so, 
So, so, so, so, so, so that's right. It's but, hard but, to get into the EU, but but as soon as you're there, we're sort of stuck with whatever they decide to do next. So it might be helpful to have these sort of smaller conditionalities, right? And and sort of you know carrots and sticks all along the road instead of just one big one. Uh, is 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 what I'm what I'm what I'm what I'm proposing. But I mean that you know the the risk is 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 is, is there. I mean the EU ultimately is a you know, Europeans like to tell them so that they are you know, we are sort of community based on sort of rules and, and 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 laws, but but in the end, I mean there is no sort of Deus ex machina to enforce those rules. I mean the EU is not a super state. I mean it has no coercive powers to speak of. I mean it can impose fines that you know maybe member states could choose not to pay. Uh, we haven't really sort of run that that experiment yet, uh, but. You know, the EU is not going to send people with guns if 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 member states don't comply with with EU law. I think that's a big difference between you know the U.S. federal system and 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 and, and the European one. So, where this has actually happened, you've had you you uh, mentioned in the book you've had U.S. marshals uh, um, protecting uh, federal law. Uh, of course, in, um, in 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 southern states, for instance, during uh, the segregation era. The, yeah, yeah. yeah. So 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 we are. You know, EU is a voluntary association of you know democratic, free countries. Uh, some some more democratic than others, it seems, sometimes, which which is a challenge. But 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 as such, uh, it is. I think it is sort of misleading to think of it in 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 the same terms as we think about you know the the, the U.S. federal system and yes. think of thinking of so sort of, you know. Rule of law questions and, and 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 enforcing common rules in the same way as we as we think about those things in in a, in a proper federal setting because the EU is not a sort of you know properly designed federal state so to speak. So uh, it is also a system where you can maybe be kicked out of something without being kicked out of something else. Um, that's what you're meaning by you said something like partial con- conditionality or something like that. I mean, so we we already see that um, with. Uh, some of the um, EU funds being frozen uh, for for Hungary and, yes. and, and, and and Poland and and I think uh, you know that that is a in a, in a way a much overdue step because for far too long uh, those two governments were sort of getting away with sort of all kinds of transgressions um, and I mean that you know that is one of the sources of leverage that that that, that the European institutions do have and I think they should be you know. Using that, that 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 source of that source of leverage, but we should not fool ourselves into thinking that uh, it's a somehow a sort of technical question, right? It's, it's I mean it's always a political call, and it will always be a sort of political call, and and whatever you know happens next will always involve sort of bargains and 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 and, and compromises between member states and, and a form of sort of mutual accommodation of sorts. And and. If I understand you correctly, that's also part of what you're saying in the book, that this sort of very sort of legalized uh, um, uh, idea, th- th- this idea that, 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 it, that, it, that it's all sort of a legal structure, it's all very legalized, that's, that's a bit of a hoax. In, in reality, it's sovereign uh, national uh, states, na- nation states that um, at the end of the day, do what they think is in their own national interest. During COVID, we, we saw that very clearly. You gave the example earlier, and that's the sort of thing that that's always in the background. So I mean, I, don't be sort of misunderstood into 
in and, and and sort of suggest that it's you know EU rules are 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 are, are hoax. I mean, that's that's not really my 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 my, my claim. What, I'm, what I am saying is, and many of those rules are you know good ones. I mean, and ones that we need, particularly when it comes to you know the principle of non-discrimination in the in the internal market, for example, and rules around you know state aid and 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 and, and rules ensuring there is competition on the. On the on the on the single market, but but we should sort of remember that that these rules are far more fragile than 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 than, than meets the eye. I mean, you know, in in the U.S. there was a civil war fought over uh, the sort of primacy of of sort of federal law in a, in, in 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 a way over over states' rights, if mm. you if you if you will. Uh, we you know thankfully haven't had a you know European version of 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 of, of such a civil war, but the the sort of supremacy of EU law is. Is, is is sort of assumed and and, and sometimes sort of asserted uh but it is not necessarily so i mean in, in, in reality i mean you know the ecj rulings sort of start from the assumption that that the ecj has the sort of ultimate authority on on these sort of constitutional level questions but that's not necessarily the view of national constitutional courts and sometimes these two worlds collide they, they collide when uh you know the german federal court mm. Uh, pushes back, uh, and they also collided last in 2021 with when the Polish Constitutional Tribunal basically told the EU institutions to get lost when when it tried to sort of discipline Poland over its uh, reforms of of, of 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 the judiciary. And there is no sort of easy uh, fix to this problem. Mm. I mean, this is sort of you know permanent the, the, bug the, of the of the European yeah, architecture. This is where the mechanism sort of ends. The, 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 after right. that, it's not a mechanism anymore. It's uh, you know, okay, what what do we do now? And and, and that's when politics starts. And I think I think exactly. So it's, it's something we just have to sort of you know keep in the back of our minds that yes. this is part of the European condition. So you mentioned two specific policy areas uh, towards the end of the book where, as examples of how this thinking sh- could work. Uh, in sort of more concrete terms, could you just briefly uh, uh, talk about those? It's energy policy and it's uh, immigration. I think you, you've you've been mm-hmm. mentioning the Schengen immigration a little bit, but uh, um, maybe you could start with so, the immigration. So, so, so both of these uh, policy areas um, have the characteristic that um, there are. So you know external effects from decisions taken by by by, by member states on others, yes. uh, and also that member states have very sort of different preferences over what exact sort of shape and form these 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 policies ought to have, and 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 that makes energy and 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 and, and immigration and and number of other sort of policy issues at the European level um, kind of what, what what some people call wicked problems. Ones that don't really have sort of you know easy closed form solutions, uh, but rather require sort of constant management and back and forth and 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 and, and, and mutual accommodation. Uh, it would be, you know, maybe it would be preferable if if everybody sort of looked at the issue of immigration and, and energy through the same sets of lenses and arrived at the same conclusions. But uh, if 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 they don't. I mean, the question is, you know, is is let's say Schengen sustainable or not? Um, what I propose is um, a system um, that, I mean, is you know, first of all, very uh, modest in its in its in its ambitions. Uh, does not sort of purport to 
sort of fix fix the problem once and for all but 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 provides an opportunity to actually uh, sort of mitigate some of the pressure that was let's say put on 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 on, on european sort of asylum immigration systems in in 2015-2016 um instead of you know the commission back then talked about mandatory quotas for uh for for for, for countries to sort of accommodate a uh, given number of of of, of, of asylum seekers um, that idea was adopted by a qualified majority and then you know number of central european countries just refused to implement it mm. um so so rather than have you know a sort of mandatory system that is ignored uh, it would be preferable to uh, have a you know voluntary system in which not everybody would have to participate but where countries that would be you know more keen to accommodate asylum seekers could sort of express that their willingness to do so and there would be a sort of matching system that would allocate asylum seekers and 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 and, and, and sort of countries where they could move uh while sort of you know bypassing the sort of more difficult players that that, that back in 2015 2016 really contributed to a to a to a to a to, a, to an effective deadlock uh i mean you know again not the silver bullet uh but a sort of two-side matching system as economists call it uh could 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 really sort of allevi- you know alleviate the pressure both on the sort of frontline countries where you know Greece and Italy were in a position by you know virtue of their geography by virtue of being on the external border of the EU of being sort of overrun with 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 with, with refugees um and also alleviate i mean the I mean, reduce the need for the sort of second chaotic secondary migration that we saw, um, which was driven by the fact that people under Dublin rules were meant to stay in the in the sort of first country of entry, but that was not necessarily what they wanted. So, uh, so that's, yeah. that's, that's, that's how, how do you make sure they actually do? Well, well, it's you know, like it's you have to make a system that's incentive compatible, right? Yes, like that, yes. that, that, that sort of gives, uh, gives, m- make sure that people sort of end up plus minus in the country that they want to go to, and 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 we just, I mean, th- th- you know, Dublin was not that system, and system of mandatory quotas it was not that system, but a system of sort of you know two sided matching, uh, which I sort of look at uh, in the in 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 the book. I mean, it's not my idea; it's 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 an idea advanced by. Um, and the economist at, at Oxford, um, Alexander Teitelboim, and Bill Jones, who's a political scientist at now at Queen Mary uh, University of University of London, and it's been used as a regional level in the UK, for example, quite successfully, to to sort of you know get people to you know where they can have a life rather than uh, sort of move asylum seekers around the country on a sort of semi-random basis which has long been the default um on energy uh i guess it's easier for people to integrate and find a job etc if they're uh, if they're able to move to a place where they where they know that their skills are needed or for instance where they know people who could help them find a job so 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 that, that that's part of the story i mean you know it's, it's a sort of two-sided problem so uh you know first of all countries have sort of you know different needs different skills as that they they sort of want to attract uh they might be, have preferences over you know language skills over you know education although obviously everybody wants you know the most educated migrants to themselves um and, and on the other side of the of the of the ledger uh 
I mean, the, the asylum seekers know where they want to go, where they don't want to go, where they'll be treated well, or they, where they expect not to be treated so well. And, 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 and in a way, uh, just like you, there's a similar sort of matching system that allocates um, doctors to hospitals in the United States when they go on sort of their internships uh, or, or, or kidneys to patients based on a sort of set of criteria. Uh, in the same way, you can sort of, in principle, think about... Uh, it's kind of a pseudo-market. It's, it's kind of a, a yeah. pseudo-market. Uh, it's an allocation mechanism. But I would, I would argue that it's sort of preferable to, to, to no mechanism at all, yeah. which, which is what de facto currently exists. And, and, and it's also preferable to the more heavy-handed mechanisms that, that were sort of, you know, that, that European institutions in particular try to introduce and, and fail. Now, now, when it comes to energy, I mean, the idea is a very simple one, which is uh, that the best way to sort of cope with Europe's diversity in terms of energy policies is to have an as integrated energy market as possible, one in which there are plenty of interconnectors between countries in which sort of energy is traded, you know, as freely as possible in which uh, there is competition where you know the sort of coercive practices that especially the Russians uh, pursued in Europe uh, which were then effectively outlawed uh, just just are impossible um, and it has to be said Europe has made a lot of progress on that front mm. over over the recent years um, and I would like to see much more emphasis on that as opposed what to is lacking sorry uh, for interrupting what is lacking in the current system? compared to what you're just uh, describing um, what, to what extent doesn't it live up to that what what, what worries me is especially sort of post 2020 um the level of sort of micromanagement almost uh, uh of the, under the banner of sort of you know the, the green transition which which tries to I mean, you know, I think it's a worthy goal, and we need to decarbonize. Uh, but it is; it would be much preferable. Everybody has to, to say that whenever you discuss it. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it, you know, it is far preferable to sort of set broad parameters of where we want to get, and then let you know innovation and markets play out right. rather than sort of pick winners in advance and sort of focus on particular industries and shower them with money uh, in a way that's distortionary to. To, to, to competition. I would argue that, you know, you need this also, I mean, you know, there, are, there are many sort of considerations to balance, including questions of sort of energy security. And again, having a sort of competitive, uh, diversified and sort of interconnected system is, 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 is an important part of, 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 you know, the sort of success of, of, of that endeavor. Okay, I think we have your your, your thinking uh, sort of presented now, and uh, that's that's a time for for maybe opening up to the floor. If if there are any questions, you're uh, uh, most welcome to uh, um, to take take the floor and um, uh, be aware that we're recording this. Um, it'll be on YouTube. It'll be on podcast so if you don't want that to happen to whatever you want to say then don't say it um, and also uh, do present uh, your name and be brief so uh, I will continue asking questions until somebody um, uh, makes a sign that, that he wants to ask a question 
And uh, let's talk a little bit about subsidiarity. Because mm-hmm. um, you have a, a, an interesting section. And I, when I read that, I thought, gee, yes, subsidiarity. What happened to that? Yep. Um, yep. <laughs> what did happen to subsidiarity? So first of all, subsidiarity is this idea from Catholic social teaching, late 19th century, that, that um, power should be exercised as closely to the people as possible in a way that there is sort of almost an organic hierarchy in which things need to be addressed at the lowest possible level consistent with you know addressing them effectively that you create a sort of higher and higher sort of layers of governance only to fix problems that can't be fixed at the lower level and to do nothing else and i mean by the standard i mean the eu does many things that are not justified by 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 sort of this sort of abstract view of of subsidiarity and there's hardly Um, any debate about that at all even uh, though subsidiarity is in the treaty. Subsidiarity is in the treaty in a very particular way, uh, not as a kind of binding constraint on what the EU can do, but rather as a guiding principle together with the principle of proportionality for the EU's exercise of the so-called shared competences in which the EU can act, but doesn't have to act. And uh, and uh, as a result, I mean, there is sort of need for, you know, when there, whenever there is sort of new EU legislation in those areas for the EU to justify that uh, it actually is, is sort of acting in a sort of proportional and subsidiary manner. The, the, the trouble is that there had never really been sort of legal challenges on subsidiarity ground that were successful. I think there were maybe one or two cases where where the proportionality principle was sort of used to strike down European legislation. Um, I think there's a case I discussed in the book, but it doesn't come back to, to, to the front of my mind for some reason. Um, I mean, it's, you know, it, it plays more of a sort of political role that yet, as you say, it's not sort of invoked very, 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 very frequently. But you also mentioned in the book that there is a way that national parliaments can invoke it. Uh, I mean, that's a sort of system of, 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 of yellow and 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 is it orange or red cards that they yeah. can they yeah. can sort of try to sort of stop uh european legislation in the so if a third of parliaments uh uh say to the commission wait a minute uh how, how does this comply with subsidiarity this the commission need has to answer that question uh, uh yeah i mean uh, but when you, when you think about that like that's not all that different from just having a sort of intergovernmental element of of the decision making. I mean, you know, these parliaments are not that different from from the sort of government representatives in the in the council. Like if you know, if true, it, 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 I mean, it, you can say it's an added layer of protection. I mean, it just hasn't been terribly sort of effective on its in its own right in sort of stopping. It's apparently, it's been used three times or something like that. Um, there you go. Thank you. Um, my name is Henrik Dahl. I am a member of parliament for the Liberal Alliance. My question is about strategic autonomy, and I would like you to mm-hmm. share your thoughts on strategic autonomy. And I would also like to motivate my question. Um, I am the vice chairman of the, of the um, parliamentary uh, agency that oversees foreign policy. Mm-hmm. So I happen to know that it's strategic autonomy is on the agenda of every meeting in the Council of Ministers these days. And rightfully so, I think, because Nord Stream 2 was a wake-up call and we don't want to get into a Nord Stream 2 situation again. On the other hand, it's hard to imagine 
strategic autonomy without more state intervention? How how will you how will you carry it out in practice uh, without the state intervening? And uh, a number of parties, including my own party and other parties in Europe, are not too happy about more state intervention. But we are happy about strategic autonomy. Do you have any suggestions for how to solve this problem? So my my, my thoughts on strategic autonomy are very simple. I hate the term, and I would advocate like retiring it from public debate altogether. Because it means different things to different people, and it's it's I think deliberately very ambiguous. I mean, you know, when you look at it f- just from a sort of purely sort of security uh, strategic standpoint, uh, you know, it can either mean that Europeans should do more on defense, on sort of on and on, on security, you know, increase defense budgets, uh, improve procurement on defense etc like to me those are straightforward propositions that are true and of course Europeans should do more uh, but but it also can mean to to other people that Europeans should do more and independently of the United States in a way that could even sort of sever uh, the defense cooperation with the United States in a in a number of areas for example by you know uh, putting in place a sort of more you know, protectionist parochial approach towards towards defense procurement. And that, to me, uh, you know, not, not only is, like, in my view, a bad idea, but it's an idea that's just not going to fly in, in, in much of, you know, Central and Eastern Europe in, or even a, in a country like Denmark, I would, I would assume. So, uh, so, so I, my, my preference, um, even, even talking narrowly about sort of defense and, and, uh, and, and, and security is to, just instead of talking about strategic autonomy, to sort of talk about specific policies uh, that we need, and I think you know, like PESCO is actually, a, I think, a very good platform for 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 doing that because it sort of offers exactly the sort of flexibility I. I Tell advocate. us what PESCO is. That's the permanent structured cooperation in the area of of of, of defense that the EU has, and 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 it's a I mean, there is a small defense fund that comes with it, and it sort of enables countries with some support from European institutions to sort of pursue projects together, you know, battle group, some countries are developing a European helicopter, European drone, um, you know, sort of projects that can be sort of pursued under EU auspices, uh, but, 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 but with, with countries firmly in the driver's seat of, you know, doing things that, that, you know, they think that they, they add value to them or where they can leverage their sort of, you know, comparative advantage, so to speak. So, so I think that's a, you know, that's a, that's a helpful way forward. Uh, in addition to that, I mean, there's a, you know, the, it's, a, it's a metaphor sort of national level debate about, you know, like how much are you spending on defense? What are you doing with your armed forces? I don't think the EU, you know, th- there are those who sort of entertain the idea of having, you know, a European army. I don't think that idea is going to fly either. Uh, there's no way in the world national governments are going to give up power, control over hard power. And, and hand it over to Brussels. So, so I think that's, you know... It's, that, it's may, sort of maybe defense an area where um, uh, your idea of uh, uh, decentral uh, coalitions of different countries uh, having common interests in certain things would, would work well. Uh, I mean, now uh, Finland and Sweden are joining NATO and it would make a lot of sense for the Nordic countries to get together uh, cooperating on... On defense, it might be easier for us to do that uh, in some areas uh, than for the whole of the EU to, to to decide to do that. I think that's exactly right. I mean, and you, you already see some of that happening already. 
but 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 I mean the, the critical I mean the critical question on on defense is that like you know we need to spend more money and build up capacities which have been sort of geared towards you know peacetime and we might not be entering necessarily a era of peacetime uh for 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 a while now um and also just a sort of quick sort of side point uh, on 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 this obviously strategic autonomy or 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 sovereignty european sovereignty as president macron likes to talk about it also extends to you know things like trade and 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 sort of regulatory practices we now see in the eu a sort of proliferation of different uh anti coercion instruments to address various you know Chinese misbehaviors in 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 in, in sort of the area of trade. I'm very wary of that. I think you know, like at the European level, what we really need is 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 to sort of you know keep those four freedoms in mind and and having European institutions to 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 sort of preserve those and 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 and, and deepen those. Uh, and 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 I don't want to see those compromised. And very often. This idea of strategic autonomy is just sort of used as an excuse, as a banner under which like really bad economic policies are are, are pursued at the European level. And, and so there's always been uh, political excuses for protectionism uh, for people who want to be protected from competition, and, and this is a new one. So fencing it in to the areas where it does make sense is is one of the challenges. Yeah. So there might fair. be a microchip issue. There might be uh, an issue concerning cer- certain defense products, but we don't want this to 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 sort of spread out to all kinds of areas as as a new type of protectionism. And uh, also in this context, what worries me is just the paro- sheer parochialism of this. That that you have a European Chips Act, you have an American Chips Act, you have you know Inflation Reduction Act that gives subsidy to U.S. electro uh, electric vehicle um, producers. And and then the EU responds in kind, and and it you know aggravates the transatlantic partnership, but it also uh, I think sort of willfully neglects the fact that that actually US and and European interests in many of these areas are aligned, right? Like so, US interests are not threatened by microchips being manufactured in Europe; they are threatened by the prospect of you know China swallowing Taiwan and. And 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 you can sort of address that concern by 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 policies that uh, maybe move more of the chips manufacturing away from Taiwan, but 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 in a in a sort of you know way that does not discriminate between say U.S. and and and, and, and European producers, mm-hmm. and I think you achieve you know much greater you know gains from trade and and also can sort of showcase that you know the transatlantic relationship is not dead yet. So so that's the sort of argument. I'm making both in Washington and in Brussels when I occasionally visit. Okay, now we take two questions in a row. So please, uh, you know, um, don't answer the first one until you had the second one, and maybe write down what the first one is about. Yes, Otto Brown's Peterson. Um, I was wondering whether uh, what we are seeing in the Ukraine crisis is not uh, an example of what you're advocating. I mean, the, the response was, it's been, of course, sanctions were imposed uh, centrally in, in the EU with some difficulty, but the, the, the military aid 
for for Ukraine has been sort of de- decentralized and uh, member countries have co- contributed very differently according to their their national preferences so is this already happening uh, I think that in in that area it is certainly happening you're not uh, listening to what I'm saying are sorry you? <laughs> I, um, <laughs> my bad my name is uh, Fred Westergaard I'm a journalist <clears throat> um Uh, I would like to hear your opinion about the uh, the fund, the uh, Next Generation EU fund of 750 billion euro. It appears to me that it gives the Commission uh, quite some power uh, in distributing uh, this big amount of money, of which I think actually Italy and Spain is they are supposed to uh, receive 40 percent of it. And uh, actually, which I, it is interesting. I think that Denmark is also uh, guarantee. It's a sort of. It could be seen as a sort of fiscal policy uh, through the back door uh, in the euro system. But also the countries which are not members of the euro system, including Denmark, stand as. Uh, they guarantee this uh, loan. Uh, Do you think this is the last time it's been (laughs) raised or will the Commission go go on with this in the future? Great question. So I'll start with the the, the second one. Um, I share your concern insofar as I, I really do not like that sort of deregist micromanaging sort of aspect of, 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 of next generation EU where you know governments submit plans and plans are sort of technocratically evaluated and and then the money is this dispersed. Uh, I also dislike the, the fact that uh, from a package that you would expect to be focused primarily uh, on you know European level public goods, I mean a lot of the stuff that's going to be sort of it's going to be spent on are you know much more localized public goods i mean i would like to spend you know eu money on you know research and development on on genuineness of european infrastructure not not on uh uh sort of local local overwhelmingly sort of local and 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 and, and, and national uh sort of public goods so 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 that is a concern at the same time um i would not exaggerate the importance of it in t- in macroeconomic terms. I mean, you know, it's, it's 700 billion sounds like a lot of money. I mean, it's, it's a very modest sum in sort of macroeconomic terms over spread over a seven year uh, a seven year horizon. And uh, in itself, uh, I mean, you can say it, it is a form of fiscal policy, but it's you know, it's and you can wonder how much of the money will be sort of wasted or spent on things that the EU shouldn't be spending money on. Uh, to what extent it serves as a transfer to certain governments, uh, but I mean it's you know it's it's it's, it's not that much money. I mean in, in in this sort of grander scheme of things, the question is whether the debt instrument might be used again in a situation in which a eurozone uh, country uh, gets into you know a fiscal crisis of 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 the sort we saw you know around two thousand and ten two thousand and eleven in the in in the eurozone because. Um, the um, European Central Bank's sort of 
space for maneuvering is much smaller in an age where you have much higher inflation rates, where the ECB has to sort of maintain its credibility, it might not be well positioned to just buy, you know, big, big, big sort of chunks of, 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 of public debt across the Eurozone's periphery. And I think there will be calls if, 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 if we indeed see a fiscal crisis to, to use this, this sort of debt instrument again to, you know, somehow federalize part of, I mean, it's, it's an ongoing conversation that, that we sort of keep having at, at, at every, 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 every turn, really. So, 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 you know, whether it's going to be used again, I think it's, you know, very much an open question. I mean, I, I don't have a sort of crystal ball to, 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 to tell you that. I think also you're exactly right about what you, what you say, um, with, you know, the caveat that these arms transfers are not necessarily, you know, covered by EU law or policy making. So, so I mean, it's, you know, it's a de facto example of, you know, sort of polycentrism in action and, and sort of decentralized initiative by, 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 by member states. I would just say that, uh, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a situation which is, to me, infinitely preferable to a world of, you know, strategic autonomy where we would have to make collective decisions at EU27 about transferring sort of arms and and weapons to Ukraine. I mean, the, the fact that uh, some countries were able to act quickly, get the assistance out of the door, you know, in the first days of war, I mean, that, 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 that did matter. And that's true both of obviously the US, UK, but, but also of, 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 of European countries that sort of stepped up and, 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 and helped. And if, if we, you know, had to have that approved at every turn by, by Mr. Orban, I think we would be uh, and, and the Ukrainians themselves would be in deep trouble. So you, you introduced the term polycentricity here. Uh, could you speak a little bit about that? Maybe Eleanor Ostrom that you uh, write about in, in, in mm -hmm. the book. What is that? So the idea of polycentricity uh, is one in which uh, you have sort of a self-governing system, if you will, in which there are multiple centers of autonomous decision-making that kind of interact with each other. And Eleanor Ostrom, who's a famous American political scientist, received the Nobel Prize in economics for her research on how such polycentric orders sort of emerge and are sustained and what are the sort of conditions of success for, for, for such orders to, to be sustained. And I mean, her work was very applied and she, um, I mean, she wrote a couple of papers about sort of polycentricity at the sort of international, transnational level, but, but the, the sort of bulk of her research con concerned management of natural resources by sort of small communities, by, by how, you know, uh, lobster uh, farmers and, and other uh, farm lobsters, and anyway, so fishing communities in Maine, like how they sort of manage uh, lobster population and, and prevent sort of overfishing and 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 then how kind of you know informal arrangements basically emerge in, in in some of these settings she also looked at examples from from developing countries you know irrigation and water management mm. in in places like malaysia and 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 and, 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 and africa this was many years ago obviously and 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 and, and she came up with kind of um like a very very empirically driven sort of observations about what makes these systems, uh, you know, work and, 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 and how creative really people are in sort of self-organizing in, in situations where you sort and of... And how does her work apply to the European Union? 
Well, the European Union is in, in, in a sort of de facto similar situation in which, um, so, so, you know, she describes settings where, like, you know, you would expect maybe sort of central governments to step in and, and like, you know, put in place regulations for how, like, you know, fishing population, fish populations can be sort of kept, uh, kept, kept, kept stable. And, and in fact, people sort of devise these systems themselves collectively uh, without external enforcement. And the EU is in a similar state in which, I mean, there is a sort of common governance arrangement under the EU, but it doesn't really have a sort of very strong center of power that can enforce rules. So you have to think about ways how member states make arrangements within themselves that are sort of sustainable and incentive compatible in, in different areas of policy making. And I think there are sort of lessons from the sort of micro world uh, that, that, that she is working on uh, to, to the sort of macro world of, of sort of international institutions, mm. because in the world of international institutions, we don't really have a sort of top level enforcer of rules. And I think that's true of the EU and it's true of just international organizations and international institutions uh, more broadly. Okay, we'll take another question. Thank you. Um, my name is Daniel Pindrup. I'm a candidate locally with a political party that is nationalistic and liberalistic called New Bali and translate poorly into English. <laughs> um, I've got a question uh, on, you, you mentioned quickly the, the this conflict, inherent conflict on, on the state of law, i.e. Uh, mm -hmm. state versus union. Uh, do you do you see a need to uh, to consolidate the positions there to, to solve that? Or or is it okay to to leave it as is and, and as a bit of a, a loose, loose, if you will? I mean, it, I, I think it, it is a genuine challenge in the sense that uh, you know, the EU is supposed to be a sort of, you know, association of free democratic member states. And, and really, I, my sort of observation about Hungary, which I mean, is a country that's very close to my heart and, 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 and I love it dearly, is that it no longer has a competitive political system. It has a, you know, highly concentrated media ownership, very sort of unusual arrangement where uh, basically most outlets are owned by a foundation or controlled by 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 the ruling party where i mean it's very hard to imagine you know opposition being able to compete in elections i mean you know, the opposition is sort of hopeless in their they're hopeless in their own way and they have you know they can they can sort of blame themselves for 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 for, for lots of things but i mean the way the electoral law was rewritten uh it makes it just very very hard objectively speaking to 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 compete i think i think it's a you know it's a, it's a real challenge to, to the future of the eu i mean the question is what do you do, do about it uh it's not a you know it's not a sort of technical exercise it's, it's it requires political judgment uh and 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 i'm not sure we are seeing enough of that uh partly because and the, the sort of the characteristic of the sort of post 2016 era uh, the question of you know what liberal democracy is gets conflated with a sort of much wider array of progressive causes where you know whereby Viktor Orban gets criticized you know for his position on migration uh, abortion same sex marriage etc rather than being criticized more narrowly uh, for you know incumbent entrenchment and and so eroding checks and balances and and i think that that the really sort of dilutes the effectiveness of, of 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 that criticism and also sort of narrows the coalition that can sort of push back against what's happening in a, in, in in a place like 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 hungary so 
so I mean, I, yeah, do, do think it, it, it is a challenge. I, I, and I would also say that you know, situations in Poland and Hungary are similar in some respects, but they're also different. I mean, Poland is a you know much bigger country where it's harder to consolidate power the way Viktor Orban has, where you know there is going to be an election which in which the opposition has a chance at winning, actually later this year, um, and uh, and where. Uh, uh, so, so I think you know the approaches to these countries should be different, and and that's why I'm sort of nervous by the sort of again the box ticking sort of technocratic approach to this uh, that, that 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 we are seeing. Also, the fact that Viktor Orbán is very clearly a sort of bad faith actor when it comes to you know Europe's security and 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 and, 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 and foreign policy, whereas in Poland, by and large, has 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 has, has played a very constructive role, especially in the in the in the Ukraine situation, let's talk a little bit more about uh, LGBT. Uh, you you early in your uh, our conversation, you 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 mentioned that part of diversity is yeah. different norms, um, and you just brought it up uh, again now. Um, now, um, in in your book, you argue uh, you use uh, same sex marriage and uh, uh, LGBT. LGBT rights uh, as, as an example of an area where uh, maybe we should have a more decentralized uh, approach. Uh, could could you speak a little bit more about that? So so first of all, just to put my cards on the table, I'm in favor of same-sex marriage. <laughs> I have you know no no, no issue. You're in favor of decarbonization and same-sex uh, no, no, marriage. No, no, no issue whatsoever. You're a good person, right? Okay, that, that, we got it. That, yeah. That, that, yeah, there you go. I mean, I'm I'm a very good person. Yes, I even <laughs> recycle and um, never get speeding tickets. So, <laughs> um, it is true on the one hand that uh, attitudes, public attitudes in in across the West, uh, attitudes towards same-sex marriage underwent the dramatic change, probably the sort of single biggest yes. sort of change measured in public opinion yeah, over the sort of shortest period of time. And you remember Senator Barack Obama being, you know, against gay marriage and then being in favor of it, yes. you know, within the sort of scope of, 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 of a couple of years, you know, really following that, that shift in public attitudes. Uh, it is possible that we'll see a similar shift in countries of Central and Eastern Europe, um, but we might not. I mean, I think you know, it's a, it's a, at, at the very least, it's a, it's a, it's a possibility, and the question is, you know, how do we treat the question in the context of Central and Eastern Europe, if if you know we we the, this divergence continues to 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 exist. I, I don't think looking at it as kind of an aberration to be sort of somehow swept away by 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 greater forces of history. I don't think that's a, that's a, that's a very useful strategy. And 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 I think there is a sense in which, um, I mean, Europeans and Americans, for that matter, have to accept that sometimes from national level democracy produces outcomes that they might not like. And 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 especially when this issue gets sort of conflated with debates about the quality of democracy and checks and balances, it 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 I I find that particularly unhelpful. And and finally. I mean, I would I would ask the question of you know what 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 the role what what what, what, what what's the role of of the EU in all this? Um, I mean, you know, since when is this question part of 
sort of the the the, the core of shared values that that sort of everybody mm. needs to needs to needs to maintain as opposed to being a sort of method to be determined by 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 by, by national policy making, which is you know what 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 it is. So so we're back to subsidiarity there. So back to uh. subsidiarity. Uh, I mean, there is you know there is one dimension of the problem where you have to sort of I guess like be sort of careful and nuanced in thinking through it. Especially when it comes to you know recognizing same-sex marriages in different countries, right? There is, if there is a principle of non-discrimination which we want to apply, that principle is in sort of tension with different countries having different sort of legal systems, and then you have sort of couples moving from one country to another, you know, and do they get the same exact sort of legal recognition uh, by 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 virtue of, of 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 having that legal partnership institutionalized in a different country? And I think you know that's that's a sort of you know, a reasonable sort of gray area where sort of people can sort of disagree, and I think some form of sort of mutual accommodation has to be has to be found. Yes, and also um, I, I agree completely, and, and I, I guess part part of the issue here is, uh, and I think you mentioned it briefly before, um, if if there are some that there are certain things that I think most people in the world would want for their country, mm -hmm. less corruption. Uh, not being arrested in the street uh, for no apparent reason without being put in front of a judge uh, at, at some point within a specific and short period of time, you know, stuff like that. I think maybe uh, to some extent freedom to express your political opinions, maybe not to, to draw pictures of uh, of Muhammad uh, or stuff like that, but, you know, so there's, there's certain things that are close to being universal. Now, this is not close to being universal at all. And 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 most people in in our part of the world didn't even believe in it. Um, if we go back a few decades, so it's it's a, it's it's a strange strategy to start there, to start with the stuff where you are not going to get a winning coalition of more or less everybody agreeing that yes, this is important parts of uh, sort of liberal democracy and and liberal institutions that men uh, should be able to marry each other. I mean, I, <laughs> like you, I'm in favor of it, but but that's that's not the issue here. I mean, why, why, why should why why should we tell Hungarians uh, or or you know people in what was the country we had a football uh, where uh, the world uh, championships in? I've just oh, forgotten. Qatar, Dubai, oh, Ka uh, Qatar, Qatar, Qatar. You know, uh, they they have some serious human rights issue. Is this the central one? Um, so, so it, it it seems like an unwise approach to to trying to achieve a betterment. I mean, I I think it, it is really unwise, in, in especially in the following sense. I mean, in the sort of European context, let's sort of leave Qatar aside for 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 a moment. Especially if you sort of care about you know the future of Hungary's democracy. Yeah. Uh, if you care about you know Hungarian government's sort of behavior on on foreign policy issues. Uh, then you want to focus on those questions alone and you don't want to sort of bundle them together with much more divisive questions. Yes. Because then the coalition that is going to sort of try to hold Viktor Orban to account just gets smaller, yeah. which is the opposite of what you want to do. Yet, if you go back to 2018, there was this report done by European Parliament on sort of state of democracy in Hungary and and the sort of criticisms leveled against against Viktor Orbán's government were, I mean, to me, just so far fetched. I mean, they included questions of, uh, you know, gender stereotypes being depicted in Hungarian elementary school textbooks. 
They included these criticisms included um, the fact that the um, Roma minority is being discriminated against in Hungary, which is certainly is true. But the same can be said about Roma minorities in other EU countries, right? So, so, so in a way, I mean, it is really unhelpful to to have a very sort of broad and expansive understanding of you know what liberal democracy is, as opposed to a much narrower one. Mm-hmm. And and I think that's that's you know true, even in the debates about you know democratic backsliding, real or imagined, in the United States, and and the sort of polarizing effects of candidates like 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 Donald Trump. And where people really uh, an overreach. sort of see yeah. policies that they don't like as attacks on democracy itself, and and I think that's that 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 is very dangerous. Um, my good friend Shadi Hamid in Washington, who works at the Brookings Institution, has a great book out where he tackles this question in the context of uh, particularly um, um, the Arab Spring and Arab sort of transitions, short-lived transitions towards towards <laughs> democracy, where you had uh, basically, you know, people in the West freak out when they realize that democracies can produce very illiberal, even bigoted <coughs> outcomes. Um, and, and 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 he and I mean, I share the, the 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 belief that it's you know still worth being committed to 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 the very narrow procedural <coughs> idea of democracy, even if it generates results that 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 that, that we don't like. And it looks like the sort of you know number of people who are committed to that narrow procedural idea of democracy <laughs> seems to be seems to be dwindling, and not just on the far right. Okay. So you mentioned a couple of interesting uh, papers during our conversation, and we'll of course link to those in the in the show notes of of the podcast and uh, and uh, on on YouTube, etc. Um, you you also mentioned in the book that um, um, uh, the I'm oh I'm 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 not I'm not sure you're arguing that. That there's a link, but there has been a backlash on some of, some of the uh, uh, LGBT. <laughs> I'm having trouble with this LGBT issues um, in some Eastern European countries. Are you are you arguing that that's that's because we've been pushing the issue that there's been a backlash, or or are you just observing it? I, th- I think you know pushing the issue just generates unintended consequences that, that that might not be to our liking i'm thinking you know the current us ambassador to hungary david pressman is a you know gay man who arrived in hungary with his partner um and i suspect that the reason for his pick for this position was uh you know was also his sexual orientation to sort of send a signal to the urban government and uh while I understand why it's being welcomed by you know Hungary's LGBTQ community, it also serves as a pretext for the Orbán government to dismiss any criticism directed at it by Ambassador Pressman. I mean, I'm told uh, by by people that, that that when he meets with the Hungarian government, they always sort of preface anything he says. Well, you're here to you know promote you know LGBTQ agenda, mm. right? And 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 that's the sort of narrative you get from. From 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 the Fidesz media. So so I think as a matter of just prudence and strategy, I mean it is sort of wise to you know tread carefully along along these questions which are polarizing in in in, in some 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 parts of parts of Europe, whether it is you know access to abortion or 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 or, or, or gay rights or you know various sort of forms of you know policies and behaviors sometimes officially sanctioned that 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 you know, people in Denmark might rightly consider bigoted. 
Dalibur Rohatch, thank you very much for joining us. Martin, thank it you was so much. A great conversation. Thanks. Thank you. This was the Copenhagen Liberty Podcast. If you enjoyed it, we would appreciate an honest review in your podcast app to help others find the show. Thank you for listening.